Oh, yeah. So we'll begin this morning as we did yesterday with just a short time of the reciting of the Seven Limb Prayer, the Vajragoda Mantra, and then we'll go into the main practice. And perhaps a few comments could be helpful with respect to engaging in such devotional practices. And there are many in all, tradition, in all traditions of, of Buddhism, Theravada, Zen, Chan, they all have, in various ways, of course. But faith plays an important role. Devotion plays an important role. Taking refuge in all schools of Buddhism is a very crucial element of the practice for those who are really dedicated to this path. And to do such chanting, and boy, the Tibetans know how to chant. So do the Thais, for that matter, and the other Theravadans. But when it comes to chanting or devotional practices like this, there are two ways in which it can be really quite meaningless. So it's good to recognize those. And one is if one has no faith and one's simply going through an outer ritual of doing some visualization, doing some chanting, doesn't really want to, has no faith, and so forth. Well, I mean, what's the point? You're not fooling yourself, you're not fooling the Buddha, you're not fooling anybody else. You're just going, you're just, you may as well be a little parrot going, wah, 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 you know. What's the point? So if there's no faith, then don't feel bad about it. But, you know, there's really no point, is there? And the other one is if your mind is simply wandering. And boy, it's easy. You know, I've been, I spent a lot of time in monasteries and dharma centers, and the chanting goes on and on and on. And even when you're fluent, I've been fluent for a long time, but so easy to say, yeah, got it. And the mouth just goes on autopilot, and the mind just goes on vacation. You know? And Shantideva, the great Shantideva said, is that, if that's what you're doing, the mouth is going here and the mind's going there, what you're doing is completely meaningless. You might as well just sit there with your mouth shut and just daydream. At least then nobody's being fooled. Nobody thinks you're practicing Dharma. You know, they just think you're sitting there probably daydreaming, which is true. And so this is why the, how do you, there's a, a wonderful complementarity between shamatha and the preliminary practices, devotional practices, chanting, liturgies of all kinds, sadhanas of all kinds. The mind makes, shamatha makes the mind serviceable, and then the sadhanas, the devotions, and so forth, put it into service. And that's a wonderful combo. Right? But I thought it might be useful to just comment briefly on the issue of faith, uh, it's something that has been a central concern to me ever since I was a kid, because I was, as many of you know, my father's a Baptist theologian, became a, a, Protest, was it, was a Presbyterian theologian later on. Um, so the issue of faith was there all along, of something to be grappled with, try to understand, make sense of. And I'd like to keep this fairly short, but uh, it's very meaningful to me. So maybe it'll be meaningful to one or two people among you, maybe more. But there are different types of faith, and one, if you have any kind of religious background in the West, you know faith is, especially in Christianity, to a lesser extent perhaps in Judaism, but still it's there. Of course it's there in Islam. But in Christianity, it's, it's salvation by grace, and you, you receive grace by faith, right? Faith as in belief. And so faith, especially since the Protestant Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation, faith has been really up absolutely central, that by way of faith we receive grace, we receive an undeserved gift of salvation. So your salvation, that is what you know, when you hit the fork in the road of death, you either go to eternal hell or eternal heaven, the stakes could hardly, cannot be higher. Could not be higher than that. It's like, make, oh God, you know, no, no, what do I need to do? I mean, really, if the stakes are that high, I mean, I would just be freaking out. You know, I really would be, and that's maybe why I'm not following that path anymore. I don't like freaking out. But faith is the key. If you lose your faith, then the left fork of the road, you know, yeah, that way, 
and you start, and you start screaming. And so faith in that context is really not intended to or expected to be an avenue to knowledge in this lifetime. It's an avenue to, it makes you suitable, a suitable vessel to receive grace, and you'll know what's going on after you're dead when you go to heaven and you think, thank goodness I'm right. You know? Um, so that's kind of the prospect. Right? And if you're wrong, then of course you never know it. That is, if, there's, if, if death means termination, well, at least, you know, you die happy. And so, so there's one type of faith. Faith not as a means to knowledge, but as a means to salvation, to, and, the, and the knowledge comes in afterlife, but then you don't get a phone home. You know, phone your living loved ones. I was right, you know. Unfortunately, there's no, you know, there's no service. The cell phone doesn't work there. It's no service. Have you ever tried, you know? Phone up heaven, no service. What do you do? So there's one. We're all very familiar with that. An area that we may not be so familiar with, but I have spent a lot of time looking into. I've taken it extremely seriously. The role of faith in science. At first glance, it will say, you've just said something gibberish because this is the whole point of science. They don't have faith. Religious people have faith. Scientists don't have faith. They are dealing with reason and empirical fact. That's a lovely myth. It's never been true. Uh, but do, do scientists have trust? Do they have confidence? And do they have intuition that they sometimes deeply trust? That is unequivocally true. Unequivocally true. Right? And so trust in your predecessors in the field of science Confidence in them. Gosh, if we say trust and confidence, why don't we just say faith and be done with it? And so you cannot get a scientific education, you cannot become a scientist if you don't have confidence and trust in your colleagues, in the people who are making your technology, in your predecessors, your professors, their professors, their professors, going back to Galileo and so forth. You just cannot test everything, especially with this massive amount of specialization in modern science. It's hopeless. You'll never be able to... So if you don't have confidence, trust, when you're reading Nature or Science or Scientific American, if you think, oh, no, what do they know? What do they know? Then, you'll, but then you're not a scientist. You're just out. You're just out. It's not to say that it's blind faith, but it certainly is faith, trust, confidence. But there's something more. So, and there it is. That's just the way things are. Anybody who's actually practiced science, studied science, studied the history of science, you know that confidence and trust are all over the place, and it would never have progressed if they didn't have that kind of faith and confidence in their predecessors, their colleagues, but a more interesting point is their own intuition. I'll just give two examples. It's Galileo. Galileo is the one who, almost single-handedly, but that's a bit of an exaggeration, overthrew 1,800 years of strangulation of the Western imagination and empirical sense, thanks to Aristotle, who had so many ideas about terrestrial and, cel and celestial physics, most of them wrong. The Earth is an absolute center, immobile in the, in the entire universe. The sun, moon, planet, stars are all on these concentric spheres right about, kind of basically posted like little stickies, you know. So that's, that's the universe. He had no real empirical evidence or reasoning. He just said it. And then a big heavy, heavy ball goes faster than the little ball. They, they drop at constant, constant velocity. He said one thing after another that was just based upon extremely crude observations and sloppy reasoning, and the people believed him until Galileo came along and found the appropriate technology for actually observing the sun, moons, and planets, and found, oh, we've been wrong for 1,800 years. But the point about Galileo, which is so interesting, is he was absolutely convinced that Aristotle and the whole Ptolemaic system of the Earth being in the center, he was absolutely convinced they were wrong before he had any, any evidence, before there was any evidence. Because Copernicus' theory, mathematical theory, was no better than the old one in terms of making predictions. 
And so it's just being debated as a philosophical issue. You like earth-centered, you like sun-centered, either way, tomatoes, tomatoes, you know, they're equally good. But Galileo was absolutely convinced that Ptolemy, going back to Aristotle, was wrong. And then with that conviction, he developed his telescope, and then years later, he came up with empirical evidence, which was the first, first empirical evidence to show that they were wrong. And then that's been antiquated ever since. And then he also came up with a technology to run some experiments like balls rolling down a ramp, constant velocity, or accelerate, the accelerator. Sorry, Aristotle. You know, Big ball, little ball off the Tower of Pisa. Big ball fall, fall faster? No. Sorry, Aristotle. 1,800 years of superstition by one person finding the appropriate methodology of carefully investigating the phenomena he was seeking to understand. But he believed it before. Many of these points he believed before the evidence was there. And his belief in his own intuition then led him to knowledge that became public knowledge, and we're all the recipients of that. Okay? Give one more example, and finished. Einstein, beloved Einstein. He came up with the idea of general relativity theory two years after he came up with the special relativity, which he wrote in a couple of weeks. 2007 to 2015, then he worked extremely hard developing a mathematical formula, a formulation and a sophisticated scientific theory to express his intuition about general relativity theory. He was moved by faith all along that it was true. Eight hard years of work, finally formulated. When it was formulated, he was totally convinced it was true even though there was no empirical evidence at all, nothing. Four years later, the evidence came, 1919. So was he a bad scientist that just wound up being proven okay, or was he actually the greatest science scientist maybe since Newton? Was Galileo the, the father of modern science? Both of these driven by confidence in their own intuition. But it wasn't just faith. It was faith leading to empirical test, which then gave rise to knowledge. So that's how faith works in a nutshell. That's faith, confidence, trust, not only in your predecessors, your technology, the people who make your technology, your instruments and so forth, your predecessors, but also to trust in your own intuition. You know? And it's worked time and time and time again, not just Galileo and Einstein. You know? So there's a second type of faith. That's, boy, is that different than, let's say, religious faith in Christianity and so forth. It's really, really different. right? And now we have faith in Buddhism. I'm sure there are Buddhists who have faith very much like Christians. I'm sure that's true. But that's not what the Buddha encouraged. That's what not Tsongkhapa or any of the other great adepts, the great scholars and so forth, they're saying faith is, certainly has a role, but among the five, they're called the five faculties, the indriya, which when you cultivate them, turn into the five powers, the five bala. There are five of those. Mindfulness is in the center, and then you almost like the center of a seesaw, and then on two sides of the seesaw, you have the balancing act. Remember, it's Mr. Balance Walla talking. It's balancing intelligence with faith. Prajna, which is here intelligence, and faith, confidence, trust. You must balance those two. And then you must balance, also so fascinating, samadhi with effort. Samadhi with effort, right? That balancing act there. And you cultivate those, and then the faculties turn into powers. But the balancing between intelligence and faith, trust, confidence, don't let your intelligence get, get carried away and leave all of your trust, faith, confidence behind. It'll just go off into its own spin. That's, you know, into its own spin. You'll just be a smart aleck. You know? But if you let your faith outweigh your intelligence, you become dogmatic, closed-minded, rigid, fundamentalist. 
And then where's the path to enlightenment now? So neither one on its own. Intelligence with no faith, no confidence. Oh, I don't trust you, the Buddha, Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava, Nagarjuna, well, what do they know? They're pre-scientific, blah, blah, blah. Good, now where are you going to go? Now you, well, you can just make your own way now because you're on your own. Good luck with that. You know, because we've all been in samsara for how long? So you think you can do, we've already tried so many times doing it all on our own. So good luck with that. You know, you're, you're welcome to do it. But, you know, have a nice long journey in circles. And so the Buddhist faith is not the same as kind of Western religious faith. But it's not the, faith, the same as scientific either. It has something in common. But there is the, it's a different faith. That, uh, Max, that is, Einstein had a lot of faith and confidence in Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell. They came up with the wave equations for electromagnetism. He thought they were brilliant. In fact, he wanted to move all of physics into field theory. Never succeeded. But so much was his deep respect, his faith, in kind of the brilliance of James Clerk Maxwell, maybe the greatest physicist after Newton. But of course, he overthrew Newton. You know, he had a lot of confidence in Newton. You can't have Einstein without Newton. But then he overthrew Newton. He overthrew Newton. Absolute space, time, matter, and energy. He overthrew Newton. So... Buddhist following, dedicating, taking refuge in, placing their trust in the Buddhist path, we're not out to overthrow Buddha. I mean, you can, you can try. Or Nagarjuna, Padmasambhava, Tsongkhapa, Milarepa, and the list goes on. We're not here to overthrow them, to outsmart them. Because it's actually not just about discovery, it's about transformation, liberation, and awakening. Fundamentally, this is pragmatic. At its core, it's a Four Noble Truths. So it's not just look what I discovered. It's rather through the it's, it's faith giving rise to discovery, giving rise to transformation, giving rise to liberation. And either you have the confidence that the Buddha and the great adepts since him achieved liberation, didn't just make valid discoveries, but actually achieved liberation and awakening. Either, either you have that confidence or you don't. If you don't, you're not a Buddhist. Don't be sad. You're just not a Buddhist. Right? But then I've read a number of people Recently, he said, oh, I have much faith in Buddha, much faith in Buddha, but those Buddhist institutions, they suck. And the Pali Canon, eh, not so sure about that. Oh, Mayana kind of give me a break. Vajrayana, ah, oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> but you know, the Buddha himself I really like. I know I won't mention the name, but there's one very well-known Indian thinker. Love the Buddha, but he has nothing to, he has no respect at all, you know, for the whole Sangha for the last 2,500 years. And doesn't really place much credence in the Pali Canon, Mayana Canon, Chinese, Tibetan, or anything else. No, just Buddha. Who's this Buddha that you know about, independently of the, re of the received Buddhist teachings that which have been passed on from generation by the Sangha? It's a figment of your imagination, completely. So that's fine. You, con you concoct a notion of Buddha, and he's like, I like Buddha. Fine, it's your own private Buddha. Because it's not reliant upon the most authoritative sources we have, have what the Buddha actually taught, let alone any kind of confidence in 2,500 years of great adepts who have actually gained profound realization. So it's kind of a package deal. If you have faith in the Buddha, the only way you have faith in the Buddha actually who is a Buddha is by way of his teachings and the teachings we get by way of the Sangha. If you think you can skip the Dharma and, go, and skip the Sangha and just go for the Buddha, great, you've just concocted a little Buddha all, all on your own. You may as well patent it because it's your baby. You know? But to have faith in the Dharma then that, of course, implies you have faith that if one practices dharma, one becomes an arhat, or a Buddha. And to practice dharma, you must have faith in those who transmitted it. That's the sangha. If you have faith in the sangha, the same thing. You know? So there it is. But it's, so faith, shraddha, confidence, trust in the Buddhist context, is not the same as is commonly taught in Western religions. 
Not the same as the, the, the faith, trust, confidence, and science. Not the same. But it has, it has the sense of reverence, of devotion, of deep, deep, life-transforming faith that we find in the Western religions. That's definitely there in Buddhism. But also that spirit of empiricism, of faith, the eagerness to know, to discover. You, for the first time, in your trajectory, it'll be your first discoveries. When you discover substrate consciousness, you'll be the first person in your continuum to have discovered it. When you discover emptiness, you'll be the first person. When you discover rikpa, you'll be the first person. It's fresh, it's unprecedented, it's glory hallelujah. It's like, eureka, I've made a discovery. You know, like the young Dalai Lama when he was a kid, he, he inherited, this is so cool, this thing about being a tuku, is you get to inherit not only your parents' stuff, but your predecessor's stuff too. So the 14th Dalai Lama got to inherit the 13th Dalai Lama's stuff and that included a telescope. So there he was as a kid with his telescope mounted on the, on the roof of the potala, looking up at the moon. You know, it's a wonderful story, true story. And he looked up at the moon. He's already had a lot of teaching in, in Buddhism, Abhidhamma and so forth, and the Abhidhamma notion of the sun, planets and stars. And the Abhidhamma, somebody, I don't know exactly who wrote it, said that the, the moon is a self-illuminating orb. You know, it's like a light bulb. Here's this young Dalai Lama looking through his telescope. He's looking at the moon and he sees craters. There's no reference to craters in the Buddhist tradition. Moon has craters? I don't, it's not there. But it got worse. The young Dalai Lama observed continuously with clarity. It's called Shamatha via telescope. And he saw the shadows, shadows cast by the craters. If there are shadows on the moon, it's not self-illuminating. And 1,500 years ago, somebody said in the Buddhist tradition, it's self-illuminating. Can't be. So he went to his teacher. Said, Get up. I don't know which one it was. Lingra Machir, who said, I made a discovery that contradicts what was said a long time ago. I saw shadows on the moon. It's not self-illuminating. And the teacher said, I, I, I paraphrase. Cool. You made a discovery. That means the early one's wrong. I mean, it has to be wrong. You've just seen the, you've seen the shadows move. Then it's not self-illuminating. So therefore, that's whatever it was, whoever said it long ago, they're wrong. Uh, now, let's get back to meditation. So it's neither fish nor fowl, faith in the Buddhist tradition. It has the depth, I'm going to say the beauty, the transformative quality that we find in the Western religions, something really quite sublime. But it also has a sharpness, the spirit of empiricism, the yearning, the passion to know that is characteristic of science. And whatever the truth is, wanting to know it. Now that's it. It's not to just prove what the Buddha said, it's a passion to know. Because really, it's not proving somebody else to be true that makes you free, it's knowing what is true that makes you free. Right? Not simply corroborating some belief system. And so, something in between. So we have these five uh, indriyas, final point, and then we'll jump in. We have these five indriyas, these five faculties that we're already born with, and then through cultivation they can become powers. So intelligence can become a power, right? clearly. Oh, re- I mean, really big time. It can become a power if you really cultivate it. Samadhi 
Oh my goodness, I talked about relativistic psychology yesterday. Samadhi can be a power, a natural power that is awesome. Awesome. One of the Bodhisattva precepts is don't use it wrongly. Don't use your samadhi to destroy villages. I've kept that precept very, very carefully. <laughs> not one. You can't blame me for any destruction. I'm not me. You know? And so, yeah, it's an awesome power. Just like a laser. You have a flashlight, no big power. Turn the, laser, turn the indria, the faculty of a flashlight, into the power of a laser. You've got something pretty serious there. Star Wars and all that kind of business. You know? And so they are faculties that can be cultivated become powers. Samadhi, mindfulness, effort, intelligence. But there's also power of faith. Power of faith. It can be cultivated and become a power. Placebo effect. What a ridiculous name. I don't know. Every time I say it, I would gag. Because it's, of course, exactly not an effect of a placebo. It might mean it's precisely not an effect of a placebo. It's an effect of your own mind, your faith, your confidence, your aspiration, your expectation. And it works sometimes what looks like miracles in the body. And that's a scientifically established fact. The pharmaceutical industry always wants to sweep that aside because they can't sell it. You know, they can't sell it. But the head of research and development one up for one of the major pharmaceutical firms, this friend of mine, and he said, statistically speaking, one half the benefit you get from pharmaceutical drugs across the board is from, not placebo effect, your faith. Your faith, that's what it really is, your faith, your expectation, your belief, your confidence in the doctor, the hospital, the degrees, the medication, the research behind it, and so forth. That's what's doing it. That's a power. And that's when it's not even, that's when it's only an indriya. That's when it's only a faculty, because you don't train to have a placebo effect. You've already got that. But could you take that power of healing? Could you take that indriya, that indriya, that faculty of healing, of faith? Could you develop it? As you can develop samadhi and mindfulness and intelligence, you can develop those. Could you not also develop faith from a faculty into a power? Faith moves mountains. That absolutely plays a role in Buddhism. So the short, short response here, after being long, is that people come to Buddhism with varying degrees of faith. Some, they're simply open-minded. Some, they come in, they just hear the first word of Dharma and they have a lot of faith. Some people very easily move into devotional practices and they love it. Others feel very hesitant about the devotional practice, don't resonate with it that much. You know. So it's just there. People are different. Some are tall, some are short. Some have more faith, some have less faith when they come in. Some are more intelligent, less intelligent. Some have better samadhi, some poor. So let's just be relaxed with that and not say one size fits all. If you don't have a lot of faith, then get the hell out you know, because you have to do preliminary practices or you have to meditate lamrim, which re requires faith from the, from the get-go. You can't practice lamrim meditation. How are you going to practice lamrim meditation with no faith? You're going to meditate on the price of human rebirth and you don't believe in reincarnation? What are you going to do with that? Like hitting your head over with a hammer. If you have faith, great. If you don't, then what is it? Brainwashing. You know, that's not the Buddhist path. I mean, I have so much love for Buddha Dharma, but I wouldn't if it were brainwashing. I'd throw it out with the other kind of brainwashing. So there it is. So I'm going to add a little segment after we do the recitation. Uh, for, for those of faith, it might be beneficial. But the final point there is simply... Faith is a faculty we all have to varying degrees. And people who think they have no faith simply haven't recognized where their faith is placed. 
We all have faith in something. None of us live simply in accordance with what we know. We all have beliefs that we have not corroborated. So some people have faith in Aristotle. They did for 1,800 years until, whoops. Oh, by the way, the whole notion of the mind is simply a, a function of the body. You guessed it. Thank you, Aristotle. And he said it with no compelling empirical evidence or reasoning. He just said it. And when the body dies, the brain just vanishes. Excuse me, the, the, the mind just vanishes. So where did, where did the modern materialistic notion of mind come from? Some empirical evidence, some great breakthrough, some discovery in the 20th century? No, it comes from Aristotle. <laughs> oh, and by the way, his, his notion of the brain, it's a cooling system. It's basically a refrigerator. It cools down the blood, and that's why human beings are more intelligent than animals. Because the brain is a cooling system. It cools down the blood so we're not so hot-headed. I think his theory of mind is just as good as his theory of brain. And both based on the same amount of evidence. So Galileo liberated us from Aristotelian physics by carefully investigating terrestrial and celestial phenomena with the appropriate technology. I was about to say, and this person liberated us from Aristotelian mind science, but nobody has. We're still stuck with Aristotle in the 21st century. Because there is no scientific discovery that's ever corroborated his notion. It's just a belief. Just as much belief as the Earth is in the center of the universe, absolutely still. So we should really you know, thank Aristotle for the biggest delusions about the physical world as well as the biggest delusions about the mental world that have gained common currency. I'm sure there are people who are literally insane who've come up with crazier ideas. But he was extremely intelligent and came up with a lot of just groundless speculations, which is fine, it's a free country. But boy, let's never complete that with science. And if you want to have faith in Aristotle, lots of luck, you know, really. But we all have faith. It's a matter of simply who do we have faith in. So simple choice, Aristotle, Buddha, that's a good choice. Make your own choice. Now let's just practice. Sam, Bema, Gesa, Dombola, 
Now continue to hold to the best of your ability. The visualization of Padmasambhava and this painter front in front in front of you. As if you were actually there, or with the faith that in a very meaningful way he actually is. And then take the four empowerments, imagining a white syllable om on the crown of his head. From this syllable emerge rays of white light, striking the crown of your own head, filling the whole body with white light, receiving the vasampamit, purifying the body. Imagine rays of red light emerging from the ah at his throat, the throat chakra striking your throat. 
purifying the speech, all obscurations, negative imprints of speech, the wisdom above, the secret empowerment. Then blue light, a rays of blue light emerging from the whom syllable at his heart, striking your own heart, purifying all obscurations of the mind, receiving the wisdom gnosis empowerment. And then from the red phi syllable at his navel, red light again emerging, striking your own navel chakra. Simultaneously purifying imprints of imprints, negative imprints, obscurations of the body, speech, and mind, and receiving the word empowerment. Then imagine Padmasambhava, his mind indivisible from that of Samantabhadra, indivisible with the mind of your own guru. Imagine Padmasambhava at your invitation coming to the crown of your head, instantaneously facing in the same direction as yourself, and then blissfully melting into light, coming down to the heart, emerging indivisibly with your own body, speech, and mind, and rest there for just a moment. From that vantage point, your awareness resting in stillness in its own natural clarity, in its own place, indivisible from the mind of Padmasambhava, Samantabhadra. And let's seamlessly move into the main practice, the mindfulness of breathing, and let's do so in silence. If you'd like to switch positions, now is the time to do so.
Golazo. So before we part, I wanted to give a brief footnote. And those of you who know me quite well, you know what I mean brief. It means no more than an hour or two. <laughs> a footnote to earlier comments. Uh, this really quite humorous idea, although he took it very seriously, that the brain is actually a cooling system, pulls down the blood. Of course, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. But it, there's no doubt that Aristotle was extremely smart and had a very vivid imagination. Uh, but why would he say something like that? And why would it be taken seriously for centuries after him? I mean, it has just no basis in reality whatsoever. And there was a good reason. I mean, the people following him were not also, they were also not unintelligent. That's not the issue. And there was a good reason, and here it is. The Greeks, then the Romans, then the Christians regarded it as taboo to open up the body, to open it up and do autopsy and things like that. It was taboo. Don't look inside. They all had their ideological reasons for it, but that was big taboo, right? And so only centuries later, when that taboo was lifted, in, Western, in the Eurocentric civilization, they can actually look it up and say, is it colder in there than elsewhere? I mean, that would be a good indicator. If you go to the refrigerator in your house, it's colder there than everywhere else, right? So if the brain is a coolness system, that should be colder. You know, but, so but centuries later, the taboo is lifted, and they learned the actual function of the heart, the, the, the pump, and that's what Aristotle thought was the base for the mind. Got that one wrong, too. Um, so it was only when the taboo was lifted that people actually started to understand the nature of the brain. A fascinating little snippet that is not commonly known, and I only learned it from an insider, is that, now, number one, common knowledge. As this whole trajectory of history moves forward up to Descartes, 17th century, uh, moving into a very mechanistic, very materialistic, largely materialistic worldview, but nevertheless a role for the mind that is immaterial, how do you connect this immaterial realm of the mind with the material world of matter bumping into each other, mechanistic view? And Descartes came up with the idea, again, with no basis in reality at all. It was just, you know, philosophers do this. They just think, you know, I thought it, I think it's true. And what was Descartes' cool idea? The pineal gland. The pineal gland is a little receiver transmitter right inside your head, right way in the interior of the head, and that's the transmitter. That receives signals from the immaterial mind, sends them to the body, and it sends impulses from the body off to the immaterial mind. It's the little, a little magical transceiver right there in the middle, inside the brain. Very cute idea. I mean, total rubbish. But, it's, but it had to have something. Otherwise, you'd have these two independent realms that had no contact. So that was the only, only point of contact. And that's for the Holy Spirit to get through, and prayers, and everything. Pineal gland's really important, right? So that's, that's common knowledge. I'll tell you what's not common knowledge. One of my late friends, a wonderful man, named Robert Livingston, was one of the pioneers of modern cognitive neuroscience. Something of a He's a big, big name. He died some years ago. But we, be, we became good friends by way of the Minor Life Institute because he attended the very first meeting back in 1987. He organized the second one in 1989 that was written up in the book called uh, Consciousness at the Crossroads. Robert Livingston told me that in modern brain science, where, of course, there's no taboos about looking in the brain at all, right? It's, it's free, open territory. He said in modern neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, and this is what he told me. I, I have not checked this out for myself, but he's really, you know, He's an authority for his own discipline. He said the pineal gland was one of the last areas to be studied scientifically. They said the frontal cortex, the brain stem, and so forth, but they kind of like, you know. And then finally, okay, and oh, it's not, you know. So now it's just one more gland. So taboos, thou shalt not look into, keeps you blind, right? 
Well, the modern scientific tradition has never been any good at introspection. The modern philosophical tradition has just taken folk introspection. They've never developed it into anything rigorous. I mean, zero. It's just no progress for the whole history of Western philosophy. But if we take the history of modern philosophy, going back to Descartes, if you look for philosophers, have they made, developed some real methods for refining attention, metacognition, ability to observe your own mind? And the answer is, I mean, zero progress. None. And of course, that's true for the rest of the scientists. They wouldn't do it. And so neither the scientists nor the philosophers have made any progress at all. I mean, really zero in terms of refining attention skills and introspection in particular. It was used in a very amateurish, folk psychologist way kind of way from 1875 to 1910, but they never developed sophisticated, in a sophisticated fashion, never developed attention, attention skills, never developed introspective skills. They just kind of used what they had already, which is exactly what Aristotle had, no better than Aristotle's. And that was, that they tried that out for 35 years, as I mentioned, from 1875 to 1910. Of course, it didn't work. It didn't work any better than Aristotelian physics. Because it's not sophisticated, it's not rigorous, it's not reliable, ordinary introspection. And Freud knew that, so many people know that. We edit out, we censor, we distort, we project, all kinds of stuff. It's rubbish, Un undeveloped, unsophisticated attention skills and introspection. And so they tried it, it didn't work. But instead of taking something that wasn't working well and trying to make it work better, from 1910, John Watson, they just threw it out altogether. And he said, we'll no longer talk about subjective experience and we will never use introspection. If you try to use introspection, we will kick you out, because that is not scientific. So they dominated Western academic psychology for 50 years, 1910 to 1960 or so. No introspection. Don't develop it, don't use it, and don't even talk about it, and don't talk about what you can observe introspectively either. Talk about scientific stuff, that's behavior, that you can measure, it's real, it's physical. I have a very hard time being respectful towards that. That's like a new branch of astronomy coming up and say, never look at stars. Because you know, it's illusory. What you see is just images created in the inner substrate. And why would that give any information about what's out there in deep space? Because your substrate, I mean, it's your substrate. And all you're seeing through the telescope is just images arising in your own substrate. So just stop it. You know, I can see a rationale there, but wouldn't that be too bad? if people believe in the substrate and that all images arise in the substrate, therefore shut down astronomy. Wouldn't that be too bad? I think it would be really too bad. And so 50 years of domination by this form of metacognitive dementia called behavioral psychology, and I, I just cannot be respectful to it. It's just, I can't be respectful for racism for many, many attitudes that people adopt. I'm sure there are racists who in many, many respects are very good people, but the racism sucks, right? And it's no problem being deprecatory towards that. So here we are. And then we have, then 1960s, so we have the rise of cognitive psychology. They had no more use for introspection than the behaviorists had. It doesn't even show up. It doesn't even get an honorable mention. And they have no word for mental perception. They don't look into the mind either. A friend of mine, either still is or was, the chair of a psychology department in a major research university in the United States. The chair should imply some influence, right? He's also a Zen Buddhist. And he tried to introduce into the curriculum that the undergraduate student should actually be trained to kind of actually observe mental events. You know? He was, shut, he was the chair. He got shut down. Shut down by the faculty. Say, no way, Jose. Sorry for all the Mexican Spanish. I don't know how, how Jose got in there, but you know. 
No way. We will not allow that. We will not have our undergraduates, we will not have our students practicing introspection or training. In, oh, heavens, Betsy. That is unscientific. They shut them down. And I asked them why. Ideological reasons. Taboo. It's a taboo. That's what it is. And then we have the last 20 years, 30 years of domination by neuroscience. They have as much use for introspection as the cognitive psychologists, as have the behaviorists. They also going nowhere, making no progress whatsoever, because it's not their job. They're supposed to look at the brain. They do that very well. But are they using introspection to really carefully examine the mental correlates to what they're examining well, using instruments technology? Are they finding some equal, some parity of sophistication? with a wonderful technology for studying the brain, are they getting curious, maybe we should develop something comparably sophisticated for finding out what these brain events are correlated to? Should we do that? No, why don't we just say the mind is the brain, then we don't have to. Oh, what was your justification for saying that? None. How about Aristotle? So introspection is still taboo. Looking into the mind directly is as taboo at now as looking into the body was taboo during the time of Aristotle. And when you don't look, you don't learn. So this is a big deal. I wrote a whole book on this called The Taboo of Subjectivity. It's all about that. And I'm, I, I can tell you it's a bestseller. <laughs> Why is everybody laughing? <laughs> it's a bestseller for about 100 people per year. I mean, they bought it. <laughs> I'm still getting the revenues. I just rake it in. Like $100, $200 a year. Man, I'm living high on the hawk. You know? People don't like to be shown, especially with reasoning and evidence, that they're delusional. They really don't like it. So the taboo holds. It's still there. Let's burn down the city walls. Right? Let's burn down the city walls. Burn it. This is not helping anybody to have taboos. That you're not allowed to look into your own mind. You shouldn't do it so rigorously. You shouldn't make discoveries that are corroborated, replicated by others, that we should pluck out one of our eyes and look at the world only objectively and then see a flat world with no role for mind and no for role for us. Let's burn down the city walls. Viva la revolución. Ten minutes late. So everybody who has interviews today, please come 15 minutes late. Just, okay? Good. So in fact, just exactly yeah, one session later. So instead of 10 o'clock, the 10 people come 10.20, etc. Enjoy your day. <laughs>